0: This is the Comparative Media Studies and Writing Podcast, a production of us here at MIT's Comparative Media Studies and Writing Program. Thanks for joining us for this episode, the Bengali-Harlem Lost Histories Project, documenting South Asian America's interracial past. It features Vivek Bald, a documentarian and our associate professor of writing and digital media. This episode was produced by grad students Sue Ding and Nathan Sucier, and edited by me, Andrew Whitaker. To learn more about Professor Bolt's work, check it out on our website, cmsw.mit.edu, or at bengaliharlem.com. So I'll be speaking about this project that um, started as a vague idea for a documentary film, um, and then ended up consuming and completely changing my life. Um, so it's a, it's a project that drove me from my peaceful life as a struggling New York City documentary filmmaker uh, into the mean streets of graduate school. And uh, the project turned me into a historian and eventually itself grew and spread across uh, at least three different media forms uh, and practices. That's writing, filmmaking, and web production. And actually at this point it's also starting to go into music because I'm working with collaborating with the jazz musician Vijay Iyer on the the soundtrack for the documentary. Um, So I'll start by just giving a little background about my trajectory um, to this project. Um, Although I'm standing here now as a professor, I actually ran away screaming from academia when I was about 21. Um, I bailed out on a PhD program in political theory a month before I was supposed to start and instead found an internship at KQED, the PBS station in San Francisco. Um, This is the late 1980s. Um, So there, uh, I ultimately spent 10 months working as the main researcher for an investigative documentary on police brutality in the San Francisco Police Department. Um, And though it was a bit nerve-wracking to be investigating violent police officers who were still on the job, it was, it was an experience that really confirmed my sense that uh, I was much more interested, in fact, in addressing issues of power, inequality, justice, and injustice in a more popular arena than political theory and engaging a, a broader public with the tools of film and popular media. Um, so when I moved to New York City directly after that in the late 1980s, uh, I found myself living for the first time in a place Uh, with large and diverse South Asian communities. And I began to connect with other young people who, like me when I was young, um, other young people who were of South Asian descent, born in the United States, and involved in various ways in the the media, the arts, and activism. Um, In the city, I also found a broader community of filmmakers and artists who were centered loosely around the independent media organization Third World Newsreel. Um, this was, and still is, an organization with roots in the anti-war, black power, Puerto Rican, Asian American, and feminist movements of the 1960s and 70s. Um, and that, that was has been focused on teaching, producing, exhibiting, and distributing films by New York-based um, filmmakers of color. Um, and Newsreel, uh, in the 1990s, was still very much had that activist edge, um, but at the same time, many of the artists and filmmakers in this constellation around the organization were also reading the social, cultural, and media theory of those days. Um, Stuart Hall, Gayatri Spivak, Homi Baba, uh, Trin Min Ha, Bell Hooks, Paul Gilroy, Hazel Carby. Um, so even though I had... Run away from academia, there was a way in which even from that that point early on in, in filmmaking, um, I was attempting to sort of bridge um, both the the insights that were coming from these forms of theory um, and the actual practice of documentary filmmaking. so um, I'm going to just run this with sound in the background um, without sound in the background, um, but uh, so my first, let's see, is that coming up? Yeah. Um, so it was the, in that cultural, political, and intellectual context of the 1990s that I began making my own um, very low-budget DIY documentary films, focusing on different histories and experiences within the South Asian diaspora in the U.S. Um, and Britain. The first of these films, Taxi Vala Autobiography. Uh, which I worked on between 1991 and 1994, um, focused on the daily struggles and burgeoning political activism of Pakistani, Bangladeshi, and Indian um, taxi drivers in New York City, all recent immigrants. Um, specifically, Taxivala sought to address the class divisions that were emerging in South Asian communities, South Asian American communities in the early 90s, and to bring to the foreground the stories of recent working class immigrants from the subcontinent. So while I I began this project as a straightforward journalistic documentary, I ultimately decided to include a first person narrative um, to try to address my own place in the community, to explore issues of class and representation, uh, the fact that I was the one in the backseat of the cab with the power of the camera, um, and to address issues of anti-black racism um, and other issues that were coming up just talking to this particular population. Um, so after, after Taxi Vala, and I'll run another clip of this. I didn't have time to really um, show you full clips of these, so I'm just letting you take in the visuals. Um, so my, my second film, Mutiny, Asian Storm, British Music, continued my exploration of stories of the South Asian diaspora. Um, but shifted to the context of Britain. Um, Mutiny focused on South Asian youth music and anti-racist activism in the UK between the 1970s and the 1990s. Specifically, it charted the musical and political coming of age of, um, of a generation of British youth of Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Indian descent who grew up amidst rampant racial violence, the generalized xenophobia of the Thatcher era, as well as the rise of fascist groups like the National Front, um, while also finding their voice through punk rock, Jamaican reggae and early hip hop. So in the early 1990s, a generation of British Asian musicians was um, combining all of these insurgent musical forms of the 1970s and 80s with South Asian folk, classical and film music, um, even as they were challenging skinheads and police on the streets of British cities. So this film um, tried to weave together in a sense aspects of the tradition of music documentary and the tradition of social documentary. Um, So one of the reasons uh, that I bring up these earlier films is that they both sought to engage audiences at two levels and this is something that has continued through to the, the present project. So first they were both attempts at creating a kind of dialogue within South Asian communities um, in the U.S., uh, in the case of Taxivala, I really I was seeking to unsettle the dominance of a, an older, more established sector of South Asian American communities—the doctors, engineers, and professionals—who um, had come to the U.S. in the 1970s and 80s, and who were at that point in the 90s sort of the self-appointed voice and image of the community. Right, this kind of model minority image. Um, that they were very invested in, um, and instead foreground the the presence and the experiences of newer uh, working class immigrants um, who were changing the shape, profile, and needs of the community in many ways. Um, In the case of mutiny, I sought to push what I saw as a fairly shallow shallow conceptions of second generation identity in the U.S. um, uh, among South Asian American youth by looking at what was happening with our more historically conscious and politically engaged counterparts in Britain. Um, so um, at the same time, so these were the kind of inward facing aspects of these, these projects. I'll stop that there. Um, and then at the same time, both Taxi Valley and Mutiny had a more outward facing, had more outward facing aspects to them um, in the sense that they sought to intervene not just within the South Asian communities, but also in the broader area of US mass culture, offering a set of images of diasporic South Asians who were powerful and complex historical actors. Um, and, and in that way, um, and this is, in a sense, building on the insights or, or the, the work of people like Stuart Hall and the ideas of representations and counter-representations, Right, so that, um, so that these were are putting forward these kinds of images and representations in order to challenge the way that we were being portrayed in US film and television at that time, which, you know, the, the terrorist trope was already in play, but in those days it was more, um, you know, the kind of hyper-spiritual guru figure and the kind of head-wagging buffoon um, that you see in shows like Seinfeld and, you know, so um, so while I was still working on Mutiny, and I'll, I'll start to talk about the current project, um, I met and started to get to know an actor and playwright of Bangladeshi descent named Aluddin Ullah, who had been born and brought up in Spanish Harlem. So here's um, Aludin. I might slip back and forth between Aludin and Aladdin, because Aladdin is the name that he um, works and performs under. Um, so um, one day after he attended a screening of Taxi vaa, Aladdin approached me and said that he wanted to make a documentary about his father, Habib. Um, at that point, um, Aladdin didn't know a lot about his father's early life. Habib had died when Aladdin was just 12 or 13, but Aladin told me what he did know, and I was immediately pulled into his father's story. Um, so Habib, it turned out, had come to the United States um, in the l- late 1920s, as early as the late 1920s, from a village in the district of Noakhali, which, which was then part of colonized India and is now part of uh, Bangladesh. Um, and uh, he came on a ship. This is what he knew, what, what Aladin knew. He, his father came on a ship at the age of about 14. Uh, he spoke little to no English. Um, was non-literate in his own language of Bengali, um, uh, but somehow managed to settle and find work on New York's Lower East Side. Um, And then in the 1930s, Habib moved uptown to East Harlem, where he met and married a recent immigrant from Puerto Rico, Victoria Echeverria. And they had two children who are al older half-siblings, who are now in their 60s and 70s. Um, then late in life, after Victoria passed away, Habib returned to his village in Nuakali um, and married Aludin's mother, Mohima, um, and brought her back to the Washington Carver projects in East Harlem, um, where they had two more children, the youngest being Aludin, who's there in the blue jacket. Um, so when Aludin and I met, um, he was in his twenties. Um, it was about 10 years after his father's death. And Aladdin had really been left with a whole series of questions about his father. Um, how did his father get from Noakali to New York City in the 1920s? How did he survive in the largest, toughest city in, in the United States? And how did he end up in Harlem um, and marrying a woman from Puerto Rico? So those unanswered questions became the core of the documentary that Aladdin and I started to plan out together around 2003 when I was wrapping up work on Mutiny. Um, but at the same time, Aludin's father's story really raised a series of historical questions that I wanted to answer. Sorry, I knocked on this. Um, the narrative of South Asians in the US that I had learned, the accepted community and scholarly narrative, um, existed really in two very separate and discrete parts. Right, so first in the period roughly between 1904 and 1924, a small population of men from Punjab had migrated to the U.S. West Coast where they found work in the lumber industry, uh, in the lumber mills of the Pacific Northwest, farm work in the agricultural lands of California and uh, the Southwest. But then in 1917, the United States passed an Immigration Act that barred immigration, labor immigration from almost all of Asia. And the whole green swath here was deemed the Asiatic Barred Zone. So it became essentially illegal for labor labor migrants from anywhere in that green zone to set foot in the US. Um, So, and then in 1923, the Supreme Court ruled that East Indians were ineligible to become US citizens. So the assumption, both among scholars and within the community, was that by 1924, immigration from India, um, British India to the United States had essentially come to a halt. um, And that the story of South Asians in the US stopped and didn't really start up again until four decades later in 1965, when a new Immigration Act um, opened the doors again to South Asians. So that act, though, was structured around a set of occupational preferences um, that favored doctors, engineers, and the highly skilled and educated. So it was these post-1965 professionals, this is the slide I like to show, um, who ultimately became the face of South Asians in the United States. So some of you have seen this slide already. It's a doctor turned self-help guru, a doctor turned journalist, two actors who played doctors on TV, and and a celebrity chef. Um, So these are all people connected in one way or another to that post-1965 professional immigration. Um, So the story of Aluddin's father, um, this man who came to the US via the east coast rather than the west, who was a Bengali Muslim man rather than a a Punjabi Sikh, who arrived in the US after the doors of immigration were supposedly shut tight, um, who settled in Harlem around the same time that Ella Fitzgerald first set foot on the stage of the Apollo um, who lived out the majority of his adult life in the United States between the 1920s and 60s at the very height of Asian exclusion. So this story was completely at odds with the standard narrative of South Asian immigration to the US. So what I wanted to know on top of Aladdin's uh, more personally motivated questions about his father was whether Habib Ullah um, was in fact just one person who somehow made it from East Bengal to East Harlem or in the 1920s with no money, no language skills, and nowhere to go, um, or whether he was part of a history of early undocumented South Asian migration um, to the United States that, that had just been completely missed or ignored. So um, to answer that question, that was the question that, that made me decide to get a PhD. Um, 15 years after running away from academia. So in other words I started a PhD program to do the historical research that I thought would be necessary to answer these questions um, uh, about Habibullah, about whether there were other South Asian immigrants like him. So for about 10 years the documentary mostly went on hold um, while I immersed myself in the archives and in the existing scholarship to figure out the context of Habibullah's migration to the US in the 20s. What I found was that there were, in fact, two early groups of South Asian migrants who had been overlooked in the scholarship and in community memory. Um, In both cases, they were predominantly Muslim men from Bengal who had come to the US via Eastern ports, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore. Um, The first was a group of um, silk, uh, peddlers of silk embroidery uh, who started coming to the US in the 1880s to sell their wares, and these were em- embroidered goods made in the villages where they were from by the women of those villages, um, to sell those goods to tourists in places like Atlantic City and New Orleans, taking advantage of a turn-of-the-century craze over oriental goods. Um, so they established an extensive network. This is part of the kind of era of that time. Um, they, extend, they established an extensive network that stretched from the Jersey Shore um, throughout the US South, as you can see, um, and into the Caribbean. And although most cycled back to India, a smaller number set up shops in New Orleans Married local Creole and African American women, um, and settled into the neighborhood of Treme. So, this is one of the earlier peddlers, Moksad Ali, and his, his wife, um, Ella Blackman Ali. So, that was the first group that I found in the archives. The second group of South Asian migrants, of which Aloudin's father was a part, um, turned out to be workers on British steamships who jumped ship in New York, Baltimore, and Philadelphia um, starting in the 1910s to escape really brutal conditions at the hands of their British masters, ship's masters, and find better work on shore. Um, so these men set up their own clandestine networks because by the, time, um, by the time they started jumping in large numbers, this was when the 1917 Act was passed. Um, so they, Um, set up clandestine networks to access industrial jobs as far away as Detroit um, and restaurant jobs in Manhattan. Like the Peddlers, this was a transient population and most of of these men um, ultimately cycled through onshore networks and then returned to their villages, you know, returned to the um, maritime trade and then went back to their villages. Um, but here again, a small number of men stayed in the United States um, where, like Habibullah, um, they settled into African American and Puerto Rican communities um, in different cities and married women from those neighborhoods. As a result, by the 1940s and 50s, um, New York had a unique, largely undocumented, but broadly multiracial community made up of South Asian Muslim men, their African American, Puerto Rican, and in some cases, Italian wives, um, and their mixed children. Um, So, um, this roughly 75 year historical narrative that I uncovered um, in my research was the basis for, um, for the book, Bengali Harlem and the Lost Histories of South Asian America. Um, so I thought I would just read an excerpt of the book to give you a sense of just this medium and its voice and the sense of what was possible in this medium um, so that then when we get to the film and the, the, um, the web project it'll maybe make sense. Okay. On a Sunday morning at the end of December 1907, a time of year when Hooghly's peddlers, the peddlers in the south, were selling their wares far from the cold northeast, a different set of Indian Muslim men appeared on the waters of New York Harbor. Several small groups set out in rowboats from piers all over the area. From the east side and west side docks of Manhattan and from the waterfronts of Brooklyn, Staten Island and New Jersey. In the brisk winter morning air, the men rode south and eastward across New York's crowded, choppy waterways, weaving past freighters, tramps, schooners, and ferries toward bush docks in South Brooklyn. There, at the edge of the neighborhood now known as Sunset Park, they climbed onto the upper deck of a German steamship, the Stolzenfels, where they prepared to mark a Muslim holy day. These men, were sailors, or more precisely, maritime laborers. They were stokers, firemen, coal trimmers, and stewards from various steamships that were then in port. Over the course of the day, groups of these seamen, laskers, as the British called them, kept turning up in one small boat after another. By the time of the ceremony and feast, 50 Indian Muslim men had arrived from every part of the New York waterfront and were gathered on the deck of the Stolzenfels a crowd that included the ship's European officers, a press photographer, and a New York Times reporter stood at a distance to watch. The reporter's story appeared prominently on page three of the New York Times the next morning. His narration of the sailors' activities was a mixture of fantasy, newspeak, and condescension. And this is a longer block quote. For for hours before the beginning of the feast, the Times reporter wrote, little Lasker sailors came. The South Brooklyn pier at the foot of 42nd Street was the mecca toward which all the Laskers headed. The little brown sailors squatted on the forward deck of the German freighter and the sheep's head was pointed to the sun. It was then massaged by one of the Laskers until those who viewed the ceremony from the bridge felt sure that the the sheep was hypnotized. Quick as a wink, the animal was dispatched and before any of the flesh was touched, Every drop of blood in the animal had been allowed to trickle into a pan on the deck. Nor was a knife used in skinning the animal. The Lasker butcher did that in his, with his thumb so skillfully and in such a short time that a stockyard butcher could not have beaten him. While this was going on, the band played the sacred music incidental to the feast of the Mala. The music sounded to American ears, much like that heard at Coney Island sideshows. It's the end of the, the quote. This was just in one of a number of stories that appeared in US newspapers at the turn of the 20th century, describing the arrival of strange and curious Hindu sailors, Hindu, uh, the racial term essentially of this era, um, in port cities along the Atlantic and Gulf Coasts. Writing from the marginal spaces of the United States docklands and waterfronts in New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore, and Galveston, reporters ushered Laskers onto the terrain of the US popular imagination. To American readers at the turn of the century, Indian seamen might as well have been fictional characters. Judging by the press reports of the day, they were equal parts exotic and peculiar, uh, inscrutable and fanatical, ridiculous and treacherous. At the same time, these articles offer us a glimpse into the lives that this population of workers from the subcontinent were fashioning for themselves as they spent days, weeks, and months in US ports, waiting for their ships to unload, reload, and set back out to sea. Most poignant are the accounts of Indian seamen who were faced with burying comrades who had died during their ship's voyages. Even the most voyeuristic descriptions of these moments hint at the care that the seamen took to prepare their co-workers' bodies in accordance with Muslim practice, and to maintain the privacy and dignity of burial rites in unfamiliar and unsympathetic surroundings. When a Galveston newsman reported on a funeral that visiting Indian seamen held for a member of their crew, he recounted a set of deliberate steps these men took to guard and prepare their friend's body and ensure his proper placement in a grave-facing Mecca. Another account focusing on the death of an Indian steamship cook described a, quote, weird ceremony at New York's Bellevue Hospital in which, quote, each of the friends of the deceased removed his shoes and stockings and taking a pail of water sat down on the curb outside the morgue door and bathed his feet, end quote. Even the New York Times 1907 account of the Feast of the Mala, with its demeaning descriptions of little brown men performing like a Coney Island sideshow, revealed that Indian seamen were organized and determined enough to secure the use of the upper deck of the Stolzenfels for their observances, and then to communicate and coordinate among Muslim crew members on multiple ships spread across several miles of New York waterfront. So um, because they were either documented or living in the US with um, an insecure status, the majority of Bengali peddlers and ship workers, by necessity, had to disappear into their respective neighborhoods um, and live, as we say now, in the shadows of the immigration laws. For this reason, their histories and those of their interracial families primarily exist in two places. Um, one, in the scattered and fragmentary archival records, and two, in the stories, memories, and personal photographs of their children and descendants. So much of the work of the book consisted in locating and stitching together the first of these, the scattered archival documents, um, into a historical narrative that was previously uh, absent. Um, This involved a kind of cumulative process of uh, amassing hundreds of census records, ships manifests, marriage, birth, and death records, finding the same people, groups of people or populations turning up in different places at different times. Um, plotting out voyages, filling in the blanks. Um, All of this enabled me to get a sense of the individual and uh, collective trajectories of South Asian peddlers and seamen um, and to understand the shape, spread, and functioning of the networks that they built in the U.S. Northeast, Midwest, and South. Um, And then that, in turn, gave me a sense of their choices and agency as migrants navigating um, two imperial powers, the United States and Britain. Um, two imperial powers that sought to limit their movement and control their labor, uh, as well as the choices and agency of members of local populations, the African-American, Puerto Rican, and other communities, um, particularly the women of these communities that harbored these men and provided them with the possibility of building lives. Um, The the work of the book, therefore, was to um, build upward from this mass of documents to collect to connect all the dots and to find the human stories that were um, told individually and cumulatively um, in these documents as a kind of archive called from within the archive. Um, So while engaged in this archival research, I was also doing some of the initial work on the documentary, some of the initial um, shooting preliminary video interviews that doubled as oral histories um, for the book um, that went into the last 30 pages or so Um, And it was here, um, interviewing a handful of of family members of, either family members or extended, like family friends of al that I started to get um, an idea of the also fragmentary but very rich uh, set of stories, memories, and personal records that had survived within individual African American and Puerto Rican families and Bangladeshi families, but were on the verge of disappearing, these stories, um, and how a feature documentary centered specifically on Aladdin's family and then building outward from there might provide audiences with a kind of personal and emotional uh, connection to the histories that was much more difficult through archive-based um, research and writing. So the idea was to turn back to the documentary as soon as the book was done. Um, But after the book came out in early uh, 2013, before um, Aluddin and I could even turn our attention back to the documentary, something remarkable started to happen. And that was that one after another, the children and descendants of people I had um, found in the archives and written about in the book, or children and descendants of, of others who were just simply connected to those histories, Um, started contacting me, over email, over Facebook, through my website, and even through Twitter direct messages. Um, So with each new person, I started collecting new stories um, and new images. Um, It became clear that the visual record of the lost histories that I'd written about existed in family photographs. Um, Photographs that had been tucked away in shoeboxes, in closets, um, and, and addicts in yellowing albums, et cetera. Um, so as new people stepped forward, not only did the number of potential subjects for the traditional linear documentary expand, but I began to get a sense of the possibilities for a web-based project, um, for a, a, a web-based, like a web space and web-based experience, right? Um, I also found myself in the position sometimes of putting people back in touch with each other. Um, So, in other words, the children of mixed Bengali, African-American, Puerto Rican families who knew each other as children and are now in their 60s and 70s and hadn't seen each other for half a century. Um, Which again, provided a sense of possibility for the web project as a platform, not just to collect stories and images, but to, in some sense, um, at least hold the possibility of reconstituting some aspects of a community that had existed and disappeared um, in many years ago. So the web-based part of the project, what I'm calling the Lost Histories Project, um, is centered on the idea of creating a kind of semi-curated but collectively produced and scalable space for the descendants of uh, these mixed families to share stories, memories, reflections, and photographs. Um, to essentially reveal through their individual and family stories, a larger history of early South Asian Muslim immigration and settlement, um, of cross-racial and interracial community, and of collective life-making. There we go. So, um, so I'm gonna run through a kind of um, demo version of the web project, which was created with a very talented team of current and, and former students, uh, Beza Boyokelu, is Beza here, Beza. Um, who has been working editing video content for the site and for the larger documentary project. Tara Gupta, um, an undergraduate from Wellesley who worked on the initial design and interface. Um, and Cameron Kahn, a former student who's graduated with an undergraduate degree at MIT and is now the CTO of a web startup. Um, I guess that's a typical story. Uh, so Cameron um, worked on the back-end programming, and further iterations of the user interface. Um, But um, first I'll just note a few things about about the project as a whole. The web project is centered largely on the visual as as opposed to the book. Um, Similar to the documentary, but as you see, also different. Um, Particularly on family photographs and interview clips. Um, But using photographs not just as evidence in the traditional sense, but as beginning points for generating um, and recording more stories from the pers- from more perspectives over time. So in other words, the photographs I'm trying to use I- in whatever way I can as sort of an invitation for further memory work and storytelling. Um, so in that sense, and this is crucial, it generates um, its sense of history out of multi- multiplicity and multivocality. Um, so while documentaries can be multivocal in the sense that you have different people telling different parts of a story from different perspectives. Um, the web as a platform for, on, for ongoing community storytelling um, has, uh, creates the possibility for a much broader multivocality um, where the history has multiple authors and where those visiting the site, instead of getting uh, a single narrative, build a sense of the history out of multiple individual and family stories and images told from different perspectives that are potentially even contradictory, um, but that add up to something greater than their, the sum of their parts, uh, in both their resonances and their dissonances from each other, right? So, um, and then whereas the book and the film at some point have to, become, have to come to an end, Um, and be fixed in time at that endpoint the web offers the unique opportunity of creating a project that is ongoing over a longer stretch of time um, that continues to grow and potentially get more and more complex um, as more and more descendants connected to those histories step forward, um, include their families stories and photos, um, and interact with others who share aspects of their own pasts. So I'll start going through the project, uh, the, the web project a little bit. Um, these two photographs at the, at the beginning, the one, one is from um, an event in 1952 held by the Pakistan League of America, which was the organization that these mostly, at that time, men from what was then East Pakistan, which then became Bangladesh, um, had created in the 40s and 50s. And then the, the second photograph is from one of the film shoots where we were able to put together, essentially everyone around this table with the exception of me um, are children, grandchildren of uh, families that are in this photo, the, the 1952 photograph. Um, so that's again connected to this idea of bringing together people through the project as it evolves. Um, so here's the basic interface. Um, so, in general, the design and usability imperatives for the project were to make something that is aesthetically uh, straightforward and appealing um, while also being designed for ongoing contributions from members of the communities um, that, that are being documented. Um, so, in other words, the goal is to encourage user involvement um, and user contributions while maintaining a kind of aesthetic consistency. Um, And um, the initial design discussions with Tara, Cameron, Beza, and myself centered on how to play off the experience of scrolling through, um, this is how it scrolls on this navigation page, um, of scrolling through, the experience of scrolling through images and texts on an aging microfilm machine, which is where this project all started in the New York Municipal Archives on these creaky old machines. and or the experience of flipping through the pages of a photo album. So although this design um, doesn't literally look like those two things, it's sort of, those were the ideas that kind of meshed into the design of this, this front end navigation. Um, and the, in terms of the, the structure, um, well, first of all, the other thing about this, this scrolling interface is the idea that it is just sort of um, infinitely expandable. So we wanted some sort of interface where it wouldn't get unwieldy as more and more stories um, appeared. Maybe this will get to that point, just as a scroll that goes on maybe too long for users, but at this point it feels like this is an interface that can just continue to grow, and people will be able to just keep scrolling down and seeing more and more stories. And the, the basic unit of, um, of the site are what we're calling stories. Um, and that is when you um, click on one of these um, on one of these it opens up into the next level down um, which is basically a collection of photographs and text and audio um, from one particular descendant about that, that descendant's uh, memories and recollections um, so you know, we have some basic text at the beginning, um, and then on this side, again, a kind of um, interface that <clears throat> allows for any number of different pieces of media to be added um, and so that it can continue to scale up as well. Um, so that, and in this case, um, she had a lot of really amazing photographs from the Pakistan League. That's her own first, first birthday at the Pakistan League. Um, that's her Amina Um, and this is someone Amina contacted me again she's one of the people who contacted me um, after the book came out and then um, what I started doing in in her case and this is the way that I'm continuing as people get in touch is that initially I'll ask you know I'll do a sort of phone interview and then I'll ask about photographs and if they're willing to share any of those those photographs publicly um, I give them instructions on you know, scanning resolution, et cetera, and then have them sent to to me. Um, And then at that stage have another phone conversation where I go over with each, um, go over with the contributor each photograph one by one to have, again, as as this starting point for further storytelling. So that often those conversations that start out as just explanations of what's in the photograph then evolve into storytelling, essentially. So in the case of um, this first photograph um, one of the things that we're playing around with is just um, being able to annotate the photographs um, with audio as well as text um, so that you would be able to take say an element of that interview or uh, a piece of audio that someone contributes after the fact and tag it to a particular place on the photograph. Now so, this is Amina Ali, a Ali a now. Al. On Was it Ali or Mia? I don't remember his name. But when he he went to Italy and he came back and, and and he brought his Italian water, that's the shorter woman. Not the woman with the hat, but the shorter woman with the dark hair. And they lived in Brooklyn. I'm Van cool. Sicklin Avenue, that much I remember. Van Sicklin Avenue, they had a house. They were one of the few people that owned the home because everybody else lived in apartment buildings. That they had a nice house; it was all so nicely furnished. I always liked going to their house. She had the accent because she was Italian, and she would cook those delicious Italian meals. But then she also cooked curry. <laughs> um, so I'll also I'll show you also so here. In this this collection, we also have um, uh, that same photograph that that I showed earlier from the this kind of reunion that we put together. Um, But then also, um, you know, accommodates not just still photographs but also video. So I'll show you a piece of video that um, Beza cut together. First group of Indians who came here was such trailblazers. They left everything that was familiar to them, and yet they still lived life with such joy and exuberance. And that's really how I remember my grandpa. I would not have known about what being on a ship was like, that it was close to slavery. It was, they were indentured servants, basically. He never shared that part of his story with us. You know, we just thought it was a grand adventure. If someone is Bengali and they're in New York, New Jersey in the 1930s and 30s, what was it really like? So we were able to speak to Chacha Choudhury's brother, Muslim, right before he passed away. He says, when you go to California, you get lost, what do you do? I say, well, I ask for directions. He says, well, you can't speak English. No directions. I feel like I've got a good. I, don't, I have no idea what these men went through. And I remember before, before died, he said, don't forget about us. He said, don't, don't forget about us. I'll just show you one other, uh, one other piece here, which is um, the case of um, Sadullah and Helenula, um not related to al but um, al father was good friends with um, uh, Helen and Saad, who took the name Victor, actually. And um, so uh, we interviewed Helen Ulla, um, who is now in her 80s. And um, she, again, contributed a number of photographs. This is um, Saad with his son, I believe. And um, you know photographs from, I think this must have been from the early 60s. Um, and there's more video clips from the interview that we did with Helen. But what was interesting in this case is that Helen had kept all of these um, pieces of paper, right? That were, um, in this case, it's a, it's a piece of paper that where um, Saad had written down the name of his village, the name of, of family members, um, uh, so that, I guess so that, that people within his family would remember or, um, and then in addition to that, she had every single piece of documentation from his transition from going from undocumented to documented. So that included these visitor's permits, his green card when he eventually got it, um, you know, a letter from the police department vouching that he had not committed any crimes. Um, and and then on top of all that, then like these scraps of envelopes that were kept because of the postmarks um, to, um, because the postmarks have the name of, of particular villages or, or regions where the family was, uh, Sadullah's family was sending from. So, um, so in this sense, that, you know, in, these, in a case like this, the, the site becomes this opportunity to have a kind of personal archive that is a, um, a counter to the official archive where it's really, you see in his documents and photographs and in his wife's storytelling, um, a sense of this process of being an undocumented immigrant, of um, you know, how he came to the United States, how he survived, and then this, this process of uh, interfacing with the immigration authorities and eventually gaining citizenship. Um, so, and this is something obviously that, again, like was, was just not possible in the format of the traditional um, historical archival research, right? Um, that really came as more, um, more families became involved in the process of narrating history, right? Um, so there's actually a lot more here that I, that I could say about this project and, and sort of, you know, I guess I'll just I'll just close with returning to this idea of the inward and the outward facing, um, which is that on the, um, on the inward facing side, as I've been talking about, that this, that this project as a whole, all three parts of it, are really, um, well, not just aimed, like, you know, this is at a very personal level about the families themselves, but then um, the project as a whole is really meant as a kind of intervention within the, within the, the South Asian community um, to really, you, know, talk about um, again, y- similar to Taxivala, to sort of disrupt this notion that South Asian America, the South Asian American story started in the 1970s with the doctors and the engineers, but rather to look at this long, you know, 100 plus year history of working class migration um, from places that are now in Bangladesh, Pakistan um, and parts of India. Um, and to really, um, especially for young people, and this is something that has been becoming more and more clear at, you know, at readings and screenings, um, to provide, say, for example, young Bangladeshi-American kids who are growing up in the shadow of 9-11, facing a, a really high level of bullying at young ages on the playgrounds, being treated like um, foreigners and outsiders, and recent you know, newcomers, to give a sense that in fact, they have a history that stretches back as long as uh, many of their Italian American, Irish American, German American um, kids. Right. So, um, so in that sense, you know, it's it's about it's it's motivated by these um, goals that are within the South Asian community, but in some ways facing outward. It's also really trying to. Um, intervene in, in the, the present anti-black racism of South Asian communities. Um, the other group of, of people in the South Asian communities that have really responded to the book and to this work are really um, activists, South Asian American activists, young people who are really working to um, you know build bridges between their activist works among, um, you know, dealing with things like uh, surveillance of Muslim communities and deportations and detentions, and then drawing connective connections to um, African American and Latino organizations, and that, that this um, the project has ended up playing um, some part in in um, essentially giving a history of those for those um, young activists also to draw on and to think about different kinds of narratives of interracial. Um, life making and affinities, right? So um, then on the outward facing side, similar to I think what I've been trying to do all along with my work is is really to intervene in the larger me- you know, landscape of media representations of South Asians, which particularly in this moment have shifted from the, or added upon, the buffoon and the guru to, add, to include the terrorist in a way that that has ramifications for People every day at the level of of, um, racial violence, essentially. So um, so the the project at that level is is really, again, like like the other other projects that I've worked on, um, seeking to present kinds of counter narratives that both place um, South Asians, South Asian Muslims within this larger, Narrative of the 20th century into the 21st, um, and and to also present those stories with with greater depth and complexity um, and variety than than what exists in the current media scape. Um, so I guess I'll end there. But um, if if there's time, I could also show the most recent little teaser for the documentary, if you'd be interested in that. It's it's more. Um, Uh, impressionistic this one Um, but you've got all the content already from the rest of the talk so um, I'll just show you that and this is again edited in back and forth between Beza and myself with a soundtrack by Vijay Iyer and others I never really acknowledged myself as really really being a true Bangladeshi. I felt more of a New Yorker. And I always told my mother my only religion is sports. And I just want to be like Reggie Jackson. Like I was obsessed with playing for the Yankees. Mm